Hello, welcome to the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition's podcast, AGCN in Press. I'm very fortunate today to be joined by two distinguished guests from the Division of Cancer Epidemiology and Genetics at the National Cancer Institute. Would you both like to introduce yourselves? Of course. Thank you so much, Kevin, for inviting us to the podcast today. We are both very excited to be here. My name is Ashley Julian Serrano. I am a postback fellow at the Division of Cancer Epidemiology and Genetics, or DCEG, uh, from the National Cancer Institute, which is part of the National Institute of Health. I am also a registered dietitian nutritionist, and I have a master's in health sciences and nutrition um, from the University of Puerto Rico Medical Sciences Campus. And next fall, I'm going to start my doctoral science in epidemiology at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. And my interest in my research interests include diet and lifestyle factors, genetic susceptibility, and chronic disease risk. So I'm very happy also to be talking about my first first author paper. And um, I'm Rachel Stolzenberg-Solomon. I'm a senior investigator at DCEG and Cicelli's mentor. I've worked in nutritional epidemiology for more than 25 years, and I'm a a registered dietitian as well. Um, I've developed and led a multidisciplinary research program that focuses on dietary lifestyle and genetic risk factors for pancreatic cancer. Awesome. So happy to have you both here. It's uh, always nice when a bunch of dietitians get together. Uh, so we're here today to talk about, as Shelley mentioned, congratulations on your uh, first first author paper. Thank you so we're, much. We're talking. The paper is titled "Hepcidin Regulating Iron Metabolism Genes and Pancreatic Ductal Adenocarcinoma: A Pathway Analysis of Genome-Wide Association Studies." So we love our declarative titles at ABCN, <laughs> and there's. There's a few things to dissect there for folks. What is hepcidin, iron, pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, and uh, this elusive field of genetic epidemiology. So I think, Shelley, let's start with you. What was sort of the background of this paper and really the rationale for undertaking this analysis and, and why hepcidin and iron regulation? Of course. Thank you so much um, for the question. Um, and Kevin, so pancreatic cancer incidents have been increasing since the mid-1990s. And last year, in 2020, um, around a bit more than 60,000 cases were, were reported. This represents around 3% of pancreatic of, of cancer cases. Um, however, it, although this cancer is somewhat rare, it is highly lethal and accounts for the third cause of cancer-related death in in the United States, and it also has a five-year survival rate of 10.8% around. So known risk factors for pancreatic cancer uh, that are already well-established include um, smoking, excess body weight, diabetes, and also having a history of pancreatitis. Some evidence um, suggests this includes from epidemiological studies and also some experimental studies that and heme iron consumption and higher red meat are, might be associated with an increased risk of pancreatic cancer. But these studies have not been consistent. So in addition, um, experimental studies and animal studies have also found that iron overload contributes to to diabetes, which, as I previously mentioned, is a risk factor for pancreatic cancer. So iron levels in the body uh, are controlled by by the hormone that you previously mentioned, which is hepcidin. And um, hepcidin is primarily synthesized in the the liver and is also secreted by the liver. This hormone, um, hepcidin, regulates the iron absorption 
from the gut and also blood concentrations. And when abscinic concentrations are high, less iron is absorbed in the, from the body. And when abscinic concentrations are low, more iron is absorbed. So abscinic production is regulated by multiple genes, and which is the focus of this study. Those genes um, that regulate abscinic for iron absorption. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, that really great introduction. So why did you guys choose to take a genetic epidemiology approach to this question? So since 2006, um, I've been involved with a very large consortium study. In, and it's, um, it's large in that we have collaborators from all over the world because pancreatic cancer, as Ticelli said, is relatively rare and it's, and it's very difficult for one study to have the power to look at um, genetics in pancreatic cancer. So in our study, we use GWAS data. Originally, um, these were, this was a GWAS study that included um, cases from 16 cohorts from all over the world and nine case control studies also from all over the world. What a GWAS study is, is you need a really big study to do a GWAS because there's like a million markers, single nucleotide markers across the genome and so we used a very, very small subset. So one of the advantages of Kai's method, so when you do a GWAS for something to be significant, because there's, you know, like a million SNPs, is it needs to be 10 to the negative 8, 5 times 10 to the negative 8 to be a significant association so that's why you need such a big study for a GWAS study, because to have the power to see such a strong association. Um, the advantage of this pathway method is Kai's method considers all the genes and SNPs in the genes all, to, all together. So you can see associations that you may not see if you use the full GWAS study. It doesn't have to be significant at 10, five times 10 to the negative eight. So um, lowers that, that P value threshold a little bit. Yes. And, and the other thing um, is we had a hypothesis. So we hypothesized that the hepcidin regulating metabolism pathway would be associated with pancreatic cancer. But with GWAS studies, there and so it was focused. But with GWAS studies, there it's it's sort of an agnostic method. And if you see an associate, and you see an association with a SNP that's a marker, and it's highly significant. Um, and usually with GWAS studies, there's like a replication too, like in another study. That that's the advantage. That that's what GWAS studies are, and like with GWAS studies, when you see an association in one SNP, there's other things you can do to add to the biologic plausibility. They do these EQTLs, which our study had some of that too. Um, just if to see if it's if if the SNPs are or the SNP is 
functional or not. And then researchers can take that SNP and then figure out what the real variant is. Our study didn't do that. Our study is a pathway analysis looking at markers, um, common SNPs and markers. So that's why there needs to be um, more experimental studies um, to understand our association. So it's very um, collaborative. Um, There's people at other institutions and universities. And so it's really big collaborative study. Um, And and so that's why we we took this approach. It hadn't been looked at before in in this way. Um, so our study, um, the goal of our study was to explore the genetic association between hepcidin regulation and pancreatic cancer risk. So we performed this pathway analysis, which focused on um, hepcidin regulation iron metabolizing genes. Um, particularly those involved with iron sentencing and regulation of dietary absorption. Um, so our, our hypothesis was that the hepcidin regulating gene pathway would be associated with pancreatic cancer, given the role of hepcidin regulating genes. Um, it, the hypothesis actually came because there was a role for um, hepcidin regulating genes um, and um, pancreatogenic diabetes, which is a different type of diabetes than type 2 diabetes. It's it's because um, the pancreas, well, the hypothesis came because of of this pancreatogenic diabetes association where iron accumulates um, in the pancreas. More often, it's known that iron accumulates in the liver, but iron also accumulates in the pancreas and um, it can cause diabetes. And diabetes is one of the most consistent risk factors for pancreatic cancer. So our study included more than 9,000 pancreatic cancer cases and more than 12,000 controls that were part of four GWAS studies um, that were conducted within the PANSCAN consortium, as well as the PANC4 consortium, which are these really large consortiums. The PANSCAN consortium has um, cohort, primarily cohort studies, although we also have some case control studies. And the PANC4 consortium is a consortium of case control studies. So um, our analysis included 412 common um, single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, and from 11 genes in the hepcidin regulation pathway. So um, beyond this huge consortium with all these people and all these case control studies, um, our division is is unique. Um, DCEG is a place where interdisciplinary research is possible and encouraged among investigators. So um, beyond Cicelli and me, there were others involved in making this analysis happen. And um, for it's our quite, project, quite the author list. <laughs> yes. So it's quite the author list. So those of you who cannot see the author list, it actually takes a day or more to enter all the authors <laughs> into the system. Um, because as I mentioned, it's this huge consortium and it's multidisciplinary and very collaborative. 
So for our project, um, we were really fortunate to work with a statistician in our division, Dr. Kai Yu, um, who um, developed this unique method, statistical method that he developed for analyzing pathways using GWAS data, which considers multiple comparisons. And I don't know if your audience understands that. So it's when it's, it adjusts for all these associations. Um, you have to consider that when you looking at lots of different things at the same time. But um, it considers multiple comparisons and it's called the Center Summary Database Adapted Rank Truncated Product or SRATP. And that's what we're going to call it from now on whenever we talk about it, SRATP. Um, so SRATP um, combines SNF levels associations across SNPs in a gene or a pathway. Um, and we use this method to accumulate signals for up to the five um, most strongly associated SNPs with pancreatic cancer within um, a gene region or within the 11 genes that we we looked at. And I also want to make a point about the data that we use. So we're not looking at what, what GWAS data is, is it's just markers across the genome. So um, it, it's not... It's not looking at rare variants that we know cause a disease. It's just looking at markers across the genome and markers within these genes. And it's picking up, Dr. Yu's method, SRATP, is picking up the most strongly associated SNPs within the genes, the 11 genes that we looked at that are involved in hepcidin regulation the hepcidin regulation pathway. So the other thing about the GWAS studies that our GWAS study is um, most data from GWAS studies, although this wasn't the case with us because um, this um, consortium and GWAS was done within our division, but um, GWAS data is typically available for other people to use for whatever they want. So our data was all is all posted on dbGaP. So um, investigators that are at um, known institutions or I guess companies too, they can they can go and apply to use the data and get the data to 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 do studies them, themselves. And oftentimes, at least with our data, it's used for many um, studies and mostly actually not pancreatic cancer, but it, you know, it's a huge resource for other people. Um, lots of other... Uh, for lots of other um, studies. Lots of other nutrient metabolism pathways and uh, other phenotypes I'm sure could be mined. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, that's all been a really great introduction to some of the methods that you guys have been using. And I, I really wanted to highlight a paper like this because I think these sort of genetic epi approaches, particularly targeting, targeting variants in, uh, in uh, nutrient metabolizing genes 
will be complementary to some of our other biomarker and uh, dietary intake related approaches. I mean, I think somebody reading this might say, why don't we just look at ferritin and and pancreatic cancer or look at self-reported dietary iron intake? But uh, as you already kind of alluded to, the power that you get from these sort of variants that you have for your entire life, which would hopefully be predictive of uh, higher or lower iron status, um, can be a unique complement, I think, to some of the traditional perspective cohort approaches. Yes, that 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 that's that's um, that's right. The other thing is because this was a genetic study to have the power to see associations. It, the study needs to be really big. Um, and as Sicelli mentioned before, I guess there's been a few studies that have looked at meat and pancreatic cancer. And we, we've looked at heme iron and pancreatic cancer. Um, so um, it's, and we were fortunate when we did that study that we looked at it within a very big cohort. Because the other thing that maybe your readers might be interested in is when you look at dietary data for this disease, which is so fatal, um, it's better to, well, it's better to look at diet in prospective cohort studies because people with pancreatic cancer often have GI symptoms years before they're diagnosed and they change the way they eat or they might have diabetes because they have the pancreatic cancer. And so they're eating differently and then the diet doesn't reflect, um, you know, the true associations because they changed the way they ate, which is something that's called reverse causation. You may not see, um, you see, you might see a different association than the association that's associated with the disease because people changed how they ate. Uh, the joys of nutrition epidemiology, it's, uh, it's, it's, it can be hard to tease out sometimes. But So basically, to summarize, though, that you're using these genetic variants within hepcidin-regulating genes, most of them signal nucleotide polymorphisms, to sort of serve as a proxy of iron status, in a sense, and in the sense that folks with variants that lower hepcidin should have lower or sorry, higher iron status because of iron overload. Yeah. Folks with activating variants within hepcidin-related genes should have lower iron status and, in theory, be protected. Uh, but so that's that's sort of the background assumptions, and there's some things we could tease out there. But uh, can we talk, I guess we should move on to what the, what the hepcidin-regulating genes were. Are there any specific ones you want to kind of call out? Because you looked at, it says uh, about 11, and then you only whittled down to about five at the end. Correct, exactly. So the, you know, the main result of this study was that the pathway as a whole was statistically significant with pancreatic cancer. However, when uh, Rachel said previously that uh, the SRTP uh, will give us some signals about the strongest genes and up to five of the strongest NIPs. So of the 11 genes, um, only five genes were the ones who contributed the most um, to this pathway between the Epstein-regulated metabolism genes and pancreatic cancer. In order of significance uh, was HJV, TFR2, TFR1, PMP6, and HAMP. And also 
as a note, and it was really interesting uh, to see that these genes were significant because pathogenic rare variants in these same genes are known to play a role in hemochromatosis, which, um, when, which is an iron overload disease that is caused by mutations, but it's just rare mutations. We only accounted for common variants um, between these genes. So we also uh, invite you to take a look at the supplemental, supplemental tables because uh, we did an exploratory analysis of the SNPs that were selected by the SARTP. So we explored whether these SNPs were associated with iron status or if they were associated with blood traits in humans. Also, in, in the exploratory analysis, we, we observed that the abstinence-regulating iron metabolism pathway and SNPs selected uh, by, the, by this analysis, the SARTP, uh, is, was associated um, with, with iron status. And also, this means that it adds to the evidence of the biologic plausibility of our findings. And however, when you read the paper, you're going to see the our strength and also and limitations of this study that, of course, um, it has. And it's worth mentioning that, you know, one limitation of, of this study was that we did not have enough dietary data as we would have liked to um, to to explore this this pathway with with dietary intake of, of iron or heme or, or red meat. And so we didn't have dietary data, enough dietary data to stratify um, by iron intake, for example. So it would be nice that future studies um, would account for that to, to address the impact of diet. Great. Yeah, it sort of suggests that there is a and the fact that you found these associations independent of iron intake, we, I think we, I could imagine at least that adding <clears throat> adding in a variable of iron intake might make this uh, these associations even stronger. So some of these genes, uh, I think it's it's worth pointing out that this is very concentrated around the, the hepcidin pathway, at least these top five genes, where you've got some sort of upstream regulators of hepcidin, like BMPs and HJV, which is hemojuvulin, and then the hepcidin gene itself. And then you've also got transferrin receptor. So, and you mentioned that these are, are all were associated with iron status and then also associated with PDAC. Do you know, I'm not sure if you did any behind the scenes, like formal mediation analyses, were, was this all mediated through iron status? Because you also looked at sort of uh, broad SNPs uh, within the region of these genes going out, I think 25 KB, if I'm citing that correctly. So I guess it's possible that these uh, variants have some pleiotropic effects and, and non-cis acting effects that they might be influencing other gene expression independent of iron status. So just curious if you could comment on that. So we did some exploratory analysis and this pathway was associated with biomarkers and um iron status. As I mentioned before, with most GWAS studies, people are very willing to share the data. And we had um, a collaborator in, he was in Australia, right? Yes. Bebin yeah. Benjamin. <laughs> yes. And, and Bebin um, and his colleagues, because all of these studies are really big with many, many authors to do them. They looked at um, at, um, they did a GWAS of, of iron status 
and ferritin and serum iron and um, transferrin binding protein, you know, the typical biomarkers that we assess as dietitians and nutritionists for iron status. And so he shared his data with us. And go and also it is important to note that um, th- his studies he did this he was in healthy individuals, um, so that's why also we we selected that um, data set to to do our exploratory analysis. Yeah, and they they they, if I'm recalling correctly, they tended to be younger than our group. So because our our group is pancreatic cancer, and the average age when it occurs is in your is around 70. So his study had younger people. But anyway, he shared his data with us. And then we did our pathway analysis with his data, looking at the iron biomarkers. And um, and um, our path, this pathway was also associated with iron status. We took the, the, the SNPs that made up the genes, the five top SNPs. And then we also looked at that with iron status and our SNPs, was it, was it all of them? I don't remember, but they were also associated with the biomarkers. Um, so it, it's, those were exploratory analyses, but it just adds to the biologic plausibility that what we are seeing may be real. So the thing about epidemiologic studies is that part of the process is replication. So although we're seeing something here, which is exciting and significant, before any conclusions can be made, it has to be replicated someplace else. So all we can say is that we're seeing this association and then it needs to be replicated again. And then if it's replicated again, then we can say more. If that if that makes yeah. sense, that's just the way yeah. epidemiologic science, and I think any science works. One study, um, you need to have replication. Yeah, I don't want to give experimental science free pass here. <laughs> if yeah, it's you need to have replication um, before you can make a definitive statement about something. With with pulling together all of these cohorts, were there was there any variability within the cohorts or the case control studies that looked like there might be effect modification by something else in the background population? I know that this was restricted more to individuals of European ancestry, but did it look like you had a really strong effect size in in one cohort relative to another? We really didn't look at like individual studies, if that's what you mean, but we did look at PAN-SCAN alone and PAN-C4 alone to stratify because if you look at individual studies, you don't have the power to do, but, and we saw similar associations in both um, consortiums, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, cool. Sometimes with these things, you know, folks will see huge effect sizes of like some of the other, I guess, G by E studies like SATFAT and uh, APOE4, for example, I think is uh, a big um, area of investigation. And certain studies will see huge moderate modifying effects of apolipoprotein E variant status and, and whether LDL goes way higher with saturated fat or not. 
then other cohorts don't find it. And it sort of suggests either it's not real or there's some other mo modifying variable in the background. But it's good, good to hear that this is pretty robust. <laughs> yeah, we have another study um, that's that's ongoing. That's not. It's a GWAS study where so so because of something called population stratification, it, it's restricted to um, Europeans. But there's another ongoing GWAS um, within our that our two consortiums that are going to look at different um, ancestries beyond European. Yeah, the population history aspect of this is, is interesting. I actually almost did my PhD at Cornell with Kim O'Brien looking at HFE variants in, that are more common in Asian populations and whether they modify uh, iron absorption as measured by isotopes. So a little oh, familiar Oh, that's really with interesting. Yeah. But there are, certain, there are certain ones that are more concentrated individuals of populations from AIDS and ancestry. And it sort of suggested that that's, uh, that that's indicative of an iron stress historically within those individuals and that mm. they've selected for a capacity to absorb more iron that in a, a low iron environment was potentially beneficial. But now in modern environments where we have plenty of iron and uh, are living to much longer ages where things like cancer are concerned, they might have some pathogenic consequences, but it's a very, I think we've, we've seen a good bit of this uh, studies of the Inuits looking at different uh, fatty acid desaturase variants um, that, that also uh, affect the ability to elongate plant-based uh, polyunsaturated fats to their longer chain derivatives. Uh, I think there's a lot of uh, evolutionary forces that have acted on nutrient metabolism and we're just sort of skimming the surface but this is another cool area that adds to that. So I guess uh, and that's a good teaser of the paper and I hope folks go check it out, but I'm, I'm curious to hear about what's next uh, for both of you and kind of where you want to take iron metabolism and genetic epidemiology. Sure, so um, I guess after this talk, we can um, agree that these findings has, and also like as Rachel previously mentioned, like we need to confirm with further experimental studies and also epidemiological studies. So also more research is needed to understand um, the mechanistic contribution of, of this pathway across these genes uh, to the etiology of pancreatic cancer. And um, so for you asked also, oh, what's the next, uh, what's the next step? So, uh, well, my next step is that I'm going to school. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I guess I'll start a new project there. And um, But I do want to mention that, you know, if you're listening to the podcast and it happens that you just graduated from your doctoral program or your master's program, I really encourage uh, the students to take a look at the division's website, which is dceg.cancer.gov. Uh, where you can find training opportunities in the CEG from the National Cancer Institute. In this website, you're going to see if um, you're going to see the current research that is being done in the division, and also uh, you're going to see investigators, their respective contacts, and also if you see, uh, you, you might find a list of programs that you might be interested in. Um, from my part, I have learned tremendously from from this experience in my last three years. So I'm really excited uh, to move forward uh, with grad school and hopefully in four years, uh, let's see what's ahead. And um, also if you 
can find me in in Twitter as Shelly Yes. And um and and as Shelly mentioned, if you're interested in um, nutritional epidemiology, um, I have postdoc positions, um, and there's other others um, in in our group. Most of the new nutrition people are within the metabolic epidemiology branch, which is the branch that, that, that I'm, that I'm in. And I guess the next steps related to this study would be for for me, replication and collecting dietary data, um, particularly from the cohorts. So that, um, because of this issue with reverse causation that I mentioned, um, so that would be the next steps related to this study. Also, there's a web page. Did you mention the web page beyond yeah. the Twitter? Okay. Okay. DCEG.cancer.com. Yes. Yes. So check out the web page. You can look up my name, Stolzenberg Solomon. You can look in the metabolic epidemiology branch. There's still the postdoctoral fellowship at NCI that you can. Yes. Yes. Okay. Our division um, has postdoctoral fellowships and other fellowships too. Great. Yeah. I mean, for, for postbacs, I mean, this is congratulations to Shelley for being a, a postbac and uh, getting a first author AJCN paper. It's a gateway ticket to grad school and, and <laughs> certainly indicative of you having a long successful career in nutrition epi and really integrating these uh, genetic approaches into epi, nutrition epi, I think is a major part of the future of nutrition epi. So Congratulations on uh, on this big accomplishment to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Awesome. Well, that is, uh, I think, a great end of the podcast. Thank you so much for, for coming on. I really appreciate your time and coming to share your science. And uh, look forward to your next HSCN podcast. We can have you on as a repeat offender. <laughs> yeah. It was very nice so talking to you, too. Thank you so much. <laughs>